Well, good morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, whenever there's the threat of snow, I wonder if um, some people already decide they're not coming for that day as soon as they hear that there might be weather. Um, but it's delightful to see a group like this this morning. It's delightful to share communion together, too, as we start this new year together. This is the first time we're together, and so it's good. Before I read Scripture, I, I want to um, just note something that's praiseworthy. Uh, Don Rosine is back here. Don, would you stand for a second? So Don, in his, uh, uh, what, hobby career, is the head football coach for, uh, one of the coaches, sorry, for the Marshfield Hurricanes, which are the local semi-pro football team. They are playing next uh, Saturday for the national championship in uh, Double A semi-pro football. Don leaves on Friday night and they have a game on Saturday night. And I thought we would recognize that. Don and I have talked about how he sees his role as a football coach, where these young men who are, are all young adults, they're post high school, some of them are post college players, some of them had really rough backgrounds, a lot of them don't have fathers. And Don has used this and prayed that the Lord would use his involvement in this to uh, give him a role in helping to shape the pathway of, of young men. And uh, I think he's doing something that's very commendable, and I thought we would pray for him, uh, for his team, but also for the ongoing impact of his involvement with these young men. Father, we pray for Don, and we thank you for the heart that you've given him for young men and using football and using coaching to help build discipline and shape the lives of young men who otherwise might go off the rails. We pray that you'd allow him to be at his best on Saturday with his guys. Allow them to be at their best. We never pray for victories because that's out of our hands. We know that. But even more, we pray that we'd use Don's legacy, his testimony, his character to make an impact in the lives of these young guys for years to come. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Don. I'm not just singling out Don because he's my friend, he is, but rather I think that it's, it's a good thing when we, from time to time, make you aware of things that are praiseworthy about how God is using us out in the world. Because we are not just Christians when we are inside this building. What we do when we go outside matters deeply. Our scripture text this morning is three really wonderful verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Paul is writing... He's writing from that book that an unnamed politician called Two Corinthians, it's actually the way the Brits call it, uh, it's Second Corinthians in the way that we usually call it. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Lord God, I pray that you would cause these words to come alive for us in a way that helps focus us, give us understanding to what Paul has written, to what your Holy Spirit has inspired, and to what we read in our scriptures today. I ask that you would come near and, and draw near to every single one of us as we have come to worship you today. And I ask that during this year that you would lead each of us to growth steps in our lives in the way that we relate to you, 
in our knowledge of your truth, and in, in the way that we are trying to make you known to those in our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and all around us. Guide us today in Jesus' name. There's a little poem or riddle that J.R.R. Tolkien includes in The Fellowship of the Ring. You may not have ever read The Fellowship of the Ring, but you may have heard some of these words. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. Why does something like that resonate with some of us? Perhaps this is because we all long for things that are hidden at first glance and are only embraced through a deeper look. Now, I'm not an expert on Tolkien, uh, although I've loved reading the books and watching the Lord of the Rings movie adaptations. But those who cherish this riddle discover that it reveals to us how some truths are not immediately recognized by the naked eye. There is a deeper truth or value found when you dig deeper. So in the midst of the story of the Lord of the Rings, uh, this riddle is actually pointing to how uh, a prince known as Aragorn will eventually become known as the king that they've all been awaiting for. But in another way, it all echoes the story of Jesus, who was born in humble and humble way of life in an unknown place, backwater place at least, and who eventually becomes known and recognized as the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace. So, some things that appear as gold are not. Our pathways may appear confusing until you turn a corner and your true destination appears. Deep roots are not easily seen, yet they have an amazing strength. All right, here's the point of telling you that. Tolkien was asking his readers to look beneath and to avoid judging by outward appearances. So I bring this up today because we are beginning a new series that we're calling Identity Check. Over the next few Sundays, we're going to explore facets of our identity in Christ that I believe can better prepare us for the divisions of our day. Part one of this series that we're looking at today is called The Outlook of a Christian. So good morning, my friends. I'm delighted to see so many of you here in our worship center, and it is wonderful to know that there are others who are joining us online even at this moment. We're glad that you've taken the time to do this and that you're making this part of your day. As always, I would like to appoint you to toward taking whatever the next appropriate step is for you. Christian growth is largely by taking one step at a time closer to Christ, closer into the walk of following Jesus and imitating him in life. Here's the question for this morning. Does it matter how I see myself? Does it matter in the way that uh, my view of myself impacts the way that I live? Does it matter to God and does the way that I see myself or you see yourself correspond with or align with the way God sees us? We're going to talk about the outlook of a Christian. Three simple observations from these three verses. Here's the first one. Fully embracing Jesus prompts a new outlook 
in life. If you consider yourself a Christian, and I'm assuming that most of us are here on a bad weather Sunday in the beginning of January, you need to realize that there's a new outlook that comes with embracing faith in Jesus. So Paul begins verse 16 saying, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Notice the word regard. In our language, the verb regard is stronger than just looking at something. To regard means that we, we look intently. On one hand, it means that you look at yourself carefully. This morning when you got up, hopefully, you looked at yourself in the mirror. In doing this, you regarded what you saw there. And if something needed fixing, you did it. You didn't come in with your hair all sticking out in 14 different ways. Sometimes I look in the mirror in the morning and my wife looks too and she says, you're not wearing that today. (laughs) That's why we do things like that. The word regard also has another meaning that has to do with how you view someone, someone else. When you hold someone in high regard, you're saying that you hold them in a high esteem. This is saying that you place an added value upon that person. So Paul writes, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. This adds some specific direction to this action of regarding. There's a before and after language that he applies here. From now on, though we once regarded... We do so no longer. Paul is telling Christians that in order to fully regard Jesus and to fully regard ourselves, we must be willing to let go an older way of operating in the world. Next he adds that he and others regarded Jesus from a worldly point of view. Have you ever wondered what Paul was talking about? Think of this, when, when Paul, who was originally known as Saul Paulus or Saul from Tarsus, first heard about Jesus, he saw Jesus as a rebel who needed to be stopped and put down. Paul uh, was a, a Pharisee and who was offended by this idea that some Jewish people from his homeland were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't buy that. And he saw Christians as people who were misguided, spreading false information, even false teaching, and as the enemy. The world has a way of regarding Jesus and other Christians, is what Paul is telling us. And then something happened to Paul. Something happens to Christians that no longer allows this outlook, this worldly point of view, he calls it. Paul no longer regarded Jesus as a mere man who needed to be stopped. And because of this change of view, he no longer looks at Christians as mere human beings. We are something more. We already celebrated that. We're friends of God. Paul is using terms and raising questions for us about our identity. And he's going to begin to answer some of our questions in these next few verses. Before I go on, let me point out the obvious use of contrast that he uses here. There's a before and there's an after. There's a worldly point of view and there's the point of view that he wants us to take about who we are from this point on. I don't know if you have fully noticed this, but our culture has ways of viewing people. In the world of politics, our American culture is radically divided right now. There is right and there is left. There is seldom any talk about the middle. For some, there's only far right and far left. 
But nobody can fully define these terms for us because this involves perceptions. And our perceptions are all influenced by our biases. Nobody can adequately or accurately tell us exactly what each of these terms means today. Socially, we are separated by a generational makeup. So we have in this room a number of different generations. We have builders, people from the generation who were born around the time of World War II, boomers, people born from 1946 to 64, the generation just after World War II, Generation X, born from 65 to 1979, uh, sometimes called baby busters because there was fewer of them than in the baby boom years. Then there's Gen Y, otherwise known as millennials, born from 1980 to 1994, the first to come of age in this new century. And there's Gen Z, 1995 to 2009 were their birth years. And even after that, there's Gen Alpha, which began in 2010 and is emerging currently as another new generation. We also have wonderful friends whose, self, whose self-identity is framed by their racial background. The largest groups today in our country are perceived as Caucasian, Latino, Black, and Asian. But there are many others who are left out in only singling out those four. While politicians like to assume that everybody in these groups think alike, Experience and friendships tell a different story. That even within these groupings, we are not all alike. There are other forces that impress upon people from all these generations that our primary identification must be defined by our sexual attractions or our sexual orientations. When I was growing up, it was taboo to even mention something like this in church. Pastors got fired if you said what I did two sentences ago. But if we don't discuss these things, at some point we turn a blind eye to what is happening all around us and that we all deal with week in and week out. And we fail to equip students and parents for dealing with the challenges they face. I'm going to stop here, even though there are probably several other divides that we could explore this morning. I think there's enough here that you get the point. The point of doing this is simply to expose our minds to the reality that our world has a way of regarding us. And this is what Paul calls a worldly point of view. The world has its way of segmenting us and dividing us and pigeonholing us in one way or another. The Apostle Paul introduces us to this. In this verse, he's telling us that God has done something radical through Jesus that takes precedence over all of these forms of identification. In fact, he's quite explicit about it. He says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Sort of has the implication of from this point on, once you understand Jesus, once you understand what Jesus is doing in your life. So that raises a huge question. What is it that shakes all of this up for the Christian? And why we do not simply accept the way the world tries to pigeonhole us? Leads to the second observation. The first one was fully embracing Jesus prompts a new outlook. Here's the second. Fully embracing Jesus produces a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is one of the most wonderful verses recorded in the New Testament. Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. 
This is what has the power to overcome all of the divisions of our world. This is what the Apostle Paul was so excited about. You can almost hear him leaping through the pages of his letter here. This is what he had discovered since the day that Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Saul Paulus was radically opposed to the earliest Christians, people who were known as people of the way. They claimed that Jesus was the Son of God, fulfilling Hebrew prophecies about the apocalyptic Son of Man, that he claimed that he had come to pay for the sins of the world, and that he would suffer on a cross, die, and rise again within three days. And then he did it. He taught his disciples, appearing to as many as 500 at one time, while commissioning them to spread the good news of his kingdom before he ascended to the heavens, promising to return in power. This was 40 days of graduate school for the earliest church, the earliest Christians. Seeing the risen Jesus transformed the life of his disciples. All of a sudden, they were no longer afraid of death because Jesus had conquered death. They were filled with an unquenchable hope. They were fueled by an all-embracing kind of love. They were experiencing a profound sense of intimacy with God through Jesus. And they embraced an ever-expanding mission to the world. Saul, at this point, was determined to put all of this to a stop. He was threatened that these Christians were distorting the way that he viewed Jewish faith, and he was commissioned to arrest and even kill some of these early Christians. And then, everything changed when Jesus revealed himself to Saul on that Damascus road. He appeared in a bright light that initially blinded Saul for three days. And Jesus called him by name and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, there blinded, on his knees, humbled and probably terrified, called out, who are you, Lord? And the voice answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Soon Jesus revealed that Saul was his chosen instrument, that's the word that he used, for bringing the gospel to kings and rulers and that he would suffer much for the gospel. On that day, Saul experienced this new identity. He recognized Jesus as Lord. He embraced the purpose and mission that Jesus had given him. He would spend the next few years studying and preparing for a wider mission. And within a few years, he changed his name, no longer being known as Saul of Tarsus, but taking his surname and being known from this point, all as, this point on as Paul the Apostle. When you hear somebody talk about uh, a person having their road to Damascus moment, it's referring back to what happened to Saul on that day when Jesus all of a sudden appeared to him out of nowhere. At the heart of this new identity is the concept of adoption. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God who receives him as the exact representation of God the Creator, God the Father, and who puts their full trust in Jesus, is given the right to become children of God. This is the promise of John 1.12. Adoption was a big deal in the time in which Paul lived. The Roman world was as divided as our world, believe it or not. In fact, perhaps even more so. Roman society was divided into class systems, and it was very hard, often impossible, to move up from one class designation into a higher one. As many as two-thirds of the Roman world were enslaved people. 
Slavery was more or less based on social and economic groupings, not racial. But you owed something to the master. In some cases, slaves were able to work for a number of years and buy their way out. But some were relegated to that, that status as slaves for generations to come with no hope of changing that. But when a person was adopted by one of higher standing, rights and privileges came with that adoption. Often adoption brought about a name change as well. All right, I'm going to identify myself here a little bit by bringing up an old movie. Any of you old enough to remember Ben-Hur? One of my favorite movies. I love to watch it every year. There's a scene where the main character, Judah Ben-Hur, who has become a slave, is adopted by his Roman benefactor. And he becomes known in Roman circles as young Arius. Arius is the, the rich Roman aristocrat who adopts him. Arius doesn't have a son. I believe that his own son had died in a war. And he not only gives Judah a new name where he becomes known in social circles as young Arius, he gives him his signet ring. That means that wherever he goes and he shows that ring, it gains him entry into new worlds for him. All at once, Judah had rights and a new name in the Roman Empire, and he was free. While John's gospel first exposes Christians to the concept of being adopted, it is Paul who greatly explains, us, explains this for us. Here he tells us that we are new creations in Christ. In other words, from the moment that you put your faith in Jesus, the Lord God himself sees you as a completely different person. He sees you as a new creation. Just like that, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a different person. You are somebody else. In another New Testament book, he tells us that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. What a powerful way of looking at ourselves. Now, I'll bet that there weren't any of us that got up this morning and looked in the mirror and said, there you are, you wonderful son of God, you wonderful daughter of God. And that would seem kind of brash. That would seem kind of out of place. But this is actually the way that God sees us. Isn't that amazing? When you have your faith in Christ, when you identify in Christ, you are not the person you were before, a bag of all the mistakes that you made or the bag of all of the, the old habits that you're embarrassed about now. You are this new creation in Christ. And then here's the third observation. Fully embracing Jesus points us to a new ministry. Verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled himself to us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God doesn't adopt us just so that we have a new experience. Being adopted changes our identity. You are no longer limited to what you were or who you were before you put your faith and destiny in the hands of Jesus. So we are no longer enslaved to sin and its passions. We are given a new identity through our relationship with Jesus Christ, which reconciles us with God. Wait a minute, you might say. Don't, don't go so fast, Paul. What's this reconciliation? Haven't I always loved God? Paul is revealing that Jesus reconciled God to us, meaning that there was a larger gap there than we realized 
between us and God before we put our faith in Him. The simple matter is that whatever God considers sin in our lives pushes us farther away from God, necessitating this reconciliation. So we were the ones who were actually causing that gap to grow farther and farther. Not God. He stayed where He was all the time, but we grow farther away from Him. This is why Paul declares, the new has come, the old has gone. We have to be willing to let go of the old patterns that identify us with the divisions of the world or of our culture in order to fully embrace the new identity that Jesus has given us. Sometimes this takes work, letting go of the habits, the hurts, and the hang-ups that hold us back. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does this within us immediately, and God adopts us to live by this new identity. If you are in Christ, you are not simply a collection of all the things that have happened to you over the course of your days. You are redeemed, which means bought with a price. You are set free. You are adopted. You are given a new identity. You are a completely new person in God's eyes. And sometimes we need to be told that and reminded of that. And this new identity takes precedence over everything else. This means I see myself as a Christian first. Yes, I am a Christian who happens to be a mix of English, German, French, Canadian, and Irish heritage, but I am a Christian before all else because this is my new identity. Yes, I am an American because this is where I was born and the land where I love, but I am a Christian first. In that sense, I love Christ's kingdom even more than my country. Yes, I have rather white skin, but I will not embrace something like white supremacy because that was never God's idea anyway, and our shared new identity belongs to people of all races and all tribes, and none of us is greater than the other in God's eyes. We are all part of one. This new identity grounds us in a day of great division. However people in our culture may pull you to identify yourself through a behavior or a political leaning or a demographic grouping, an attraction or an orientation, God holds out to you something that is far greater. He wants to give you a new identity in Christ that frees you from all that enslaves, that forgives you for all that you've ever done and unites you with all who are truly in Christ. And this lasts forever. Not only does he give us a new identity, Jesus calls us to a new ministry. He calls us to the ministry of reconciliation. This is why we are told to no longer regard anybody else in the old worldly way of thinking. Those ways lock us into the past and promote our divisions. God is at work reconciling all kinds of people to himself through Jesus. As we tell our stories we must let go of the old. And as we do so, he makes us ministers of the new. I hope that when you go home today and somebody says, oh, you went to your church again. What did you learn today? That's always the great question, isn't it? You can say to them, today I learned that I am a minister of reconciliation. He doesn't just give that to Paul. He doesn't just give that to pastors like me. He spreads that throughout the church. We are ministers of reconciliation in the midst of a world that tries to pull people apart. Do you see the contrast? 
That's what our world does. It pigeonholes everybody into groups who fight and can't get along. And we are given this role of being ministers of reconciliation in the name of Jesus Christ who's trying to bring people together as sons and daughters of the living God. Here's the big idea for this morning. Trusting Jesus prompts a new outlook, produces a new identity, and points to a dynamic ministry of reconciliation. How do you work on this? I can think of two ways. One, refuse to consider anyone as being beyond the life-transforming grace of Jesus. No matter how frustrated you, are, you and I become with some people, they are never, ever beyond the reach of God's grace. Second, be willing to transcend comfort zones in order to build bridges. There's a song that we sometimes sing around here written by Charity Gale. It says, I was lost in the shame, could not get past my blame until he called my name. I'm so glad he changed me. Darkness held me down, but Jesus pulled me out. I'm no longer bound. I'm so glad he changed me. See, I'm now a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. There's a new life. I live by faith, not by sight. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Yes, it's mine. I've met the author of my story, and he's mine. Oh, yes, he's mine. Dave, I don't know if you can hear me back there, but I hope that we'll sing this song somewhere in this series in the next couple of weeks. Trusting Jesus prompts a new outlook, produces a new identity, and points us to a dynamic ministry of reconciliation. I wonder if you would read this prayer with me that uh, is going to flash up on the page or it's on the, um, the handout that you got this morning. It's short, but it sums up, I think, the thoughts and hopes that come from this message. Let's do this together. Lord, I embrace my new identity in Christ. Let my new identity flow through every part of my life and make me an instrument of your reconciling work wherever this life takes me. Amen.